0: Section Seven of Youth by Leo Tolstoy, translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section Seven, Chapters Twenty Five through Twenty Eight. Chapter Twenty Five, I become better acquainted with the Nekhludoffs. When I returned to the veranda, I found that they were not talking of me at all, as I had anticipated. On the contrary, Veronika had laid aside the book and was engaged in a heated dispute with Dmitri, who, for his part, was walking up and down the veranda, and frowningly adjusting his neck and his collar as he did so. The subject of the quarrel seemed to be Ivan Yakovlevitch, and superstition, but it was too animated a difference for its underlying cause not to be something which concerned the family much more nearly. Although the Princess and Lubov were sitting by in silence, they were following every word, and evidently tempted at times to take part in the dispute. Yet always, just when they were about to speak, they checked themselves, and left the field clear for the two principals, Dmitri and Veronika. On my entry the latter glanced at me with such an indifferent air that I could see she was wholly absorbed in the quarrel, and did not care whether she spoke in my presence or not. The princess, too, looked the same, and was clearly on Veronica's side, while Dmitri began, if anything, to raise his voice still more when I appeared, and Lubov Sergievna, for her part observed to no one in particular, Old people are quite right when they say, Si jeunesse savait, si pouvait. Nevertheless, this quotation did not check the dispute, though it somehow gave me the impression that the side represented by the speaker and her friend was in the wrong. Although it was a little awkward for me to be present at a petty family difference, the fact that the true relations of the family revealed themselves during its progress, and that my presence did nothing to hinder that revelation, afforded me considerable gratification. How often it happens that for years one sees a family cover themselves over with a conventional cloak of decorum and preserve the real relations of its members a secret from every eye. How often, too, have I remarked that the more impenetrable, and therefore the more decorous, is the cloak, the harsher are the relations which it conceals. Yet once let some unexpected question, often a most trivial one—the colour of a woman's hair, a visit, a man's horses, and so forth—arise in that family circle, and without any visible cause there will also arise an ever-growing difference until in time the cloak of decorum becomes unequal to confining the quarrel within due bounds, and, to the dismay of the disputants and the astonishment of the auditors, the real and ill-adjusted relations of the family are laid bare, and the cloak, now useless for concealment, is bandied from hand to hand among the contending factions, until it serves only to remind one of the years during which it successfully deceived one's perceptions. Sometimes to strike one's head violently against a ceiling hurts one less than just to graze some spot which has been hurt and bruised before. And in almost every family there exists some such raw and tender spot. In the Nekhludoff family that spot was Dmitri's extraordinary affection for Lubov Sergievna, which aroused in the mother and sister if not a jealous feeling, at all events a sense of hurt family pride. This was the grave significance which underlay for all those present, the seeming dispute about Ivan Yakovlevitch and superstition. In anything that other people deride and despise, you invariably profess to see something extraordinarily good," Varenika was saying in her clear voice, as she articulated each syllable with careful precision. "'Indeed!' retorted Dmitri, with an impatient toss of his head. Now, in the first place, only a most unthinking person could ever speak of despising such a remarkable man as Ivan Yakovlevitch, while in the second place it is you who invariably profess to see nothing good in what confronts you. Meanwhile, Sofia Ivanovna kept looking anxiously at us as she turned first to her nephew, and then to her niece, and then to myself. Twice she opened her mouth as though to say what was in her mind, and drew a deep sigh. "'Varia! Please go on reading,' she said at length, at the same time handing her niece the book, and patting her hand kindly. "'I wish to know whether he ever found HER again.' As a matter of fact, the novel in question contained not a word about any one finding any one else. "'And, Misha, dear,' she added to her nephew, despite the glum looks which he was throwing at her for having interrupted the logical thread of his deductions, "'you had better let me poultice your cheek, or your teeth will begin to ache again.' After that the reading was resumed, yet the quarrel had in no way dispelled the calm atmosphere of family and intellectual harmony which enveloped this circle of ladies. Clearly deriving its inspiration and character from the Princess Maria Ivanovna, it was a circle which for me had a wholly novel and attractive character of logicalness mingled with simplicity and refinement. That character I could discern in the daintiness, good taste, and solidity of everything about me, whether the handbell, the binding of the book, the settee, or the table. Likewise I defined it in the upright, well-corseted pose of the Princess, in her pendant curls of grey hair, in the manner in which she had at our first introduction called me plain Nicholas, and he in the occupations of the ladies, the reading and the sewing of garments, and in the unusual whiteness of their hands—those hands, en passant, showed a family feature common to all—namely, the feature that the flesh of the palm on the outer side was rosy in color, and divided by a sharp straight line from the pure whiteness of the upper portion of the hand. Still more was the character of this feminine circle expressed in the manner in which the three ladies spoke Russian and French—spoke them, that is to say, with perfect articulation of syllables and pedantic accuracy of substantives and prepositions. All this—and more especially the fact that the ladies treated me as simply and as seriously as a real grown-up. Telling me their opinions, and listening to my own—a thing to which I was so little accustomed that for all my glittering buttons and blue facings I was in constant fear of being told, "'Surely you do not think that we are talking seriously to you. Go away and learn something.' All this, I say, caused me to feel an entire absence of restraint in this society." I ventured at times to rise, to move about, and to talk boldly to each of the ladies except Veronica, whom I always felt it was unbecoming or even forbidden for me to address unless she first spoke to me. As I listened to her clear, pleasant voice reading aloud, I kept glancing from her to the path of the flower-garden, where the rain-spots were making small dark circles in the sand and thence to the lime-trees, upon the leaves of which the rain was pattering down in large detached drops, shed from the pale shimmering edge of the livid blue cloud which hung suspended over us. Then I would glance at her again, and then at the last purple rays of the setting sun, where they were throwing the dense clusters of old rain-washed birches into brilliant relief. Yet again my eyes would return to Veronika, and each time that they did so it struck me afresh that she was not nearly so plain as at first I had thought her. How I wish that I wasn't in love already! I reflected. Or that Sonetchka was Veronika! How nice it would be if suddenly I could become a member of this family, and have the three ladies for my mother, aunt, and wife, respectively! All the time that these thoughts kept passing through my head, I kept attentively regarding Veronika as she read, until somehow I felt as though I were magnetizing her, and that presently she must look at me sure enough, at length she raised her head, threw me a glance, and, meeting my eyes, turned away. "'The rain does not seem to stop,' she remarked. Suddenly a new feeling came over me. I began to feel as though everything now happening to me was a repetition of some similar occurrence before, as though on some previous occasion a shower of rain had begun to fall and the sun had set behind birch-trees, and I had been looking at her, and she had been reading aloud, and I had magnetized her, and she had looked up at me. Yes, all this I seemed to recall as though it had happened once before." "'Surely she is not—she!' was my thought. Surely IT is not beginning. However, I soon decided that Veronika was not the she referred to, and that IT was not beginning. In the first place, I said to myself, Varenika is not at all beautiful. She is just an ordinary girl whose acquaintance I have made in the ordinary way, whereas the she whom I shall meet somewhere and some day in some not ordinary way will be anything but ordinary. This family pleases me so much only because hitherto I have never seen anybody. Such things will always be happening in the future, and I shall see many more such families during my life. CHAPTER Twenty Six. I SHOW OFF At tea-time the reading came to an end, and the ladies began to talk among themselves of persons and things unknown to me. This I conceived them to be doing on purpose to make me conscious, for all their kind demeanour, of the difference which years and position in the world had set between them and myself. In general discussions, however, in which I could take part, I sought to atone for my late silence by exhibiting that extraordinary cleverness and originality to which I felt compelled by my university uniform. For instance, when the conversation turned upon country-houses, I said that Prince Ivan Ivanovitch had a villa near Moscow which people came to see even from London and Paris, and that it contained balustrading which had cost 380,000 roubles. Likewise, I remarked that the Prince was a very near relation of mine, and that when lunching with him the same day he had invited me to go and spend the entire summer with him at that villa, but that I had declined, since I knew the villa well, and had stayed in it more than once, and that all those balustradings and bridges did not interest me, since I could not bear ornamental work, especially in the country, where I liked everything to be wholly countrified. After delivering myself of this extraordinary and complicated romance, I grew confused and blushed so much that every one must have seen that I was lying. Both Veronika, who was handing me a cup of tea, and Sofia Ivanovna, who had been gazing at me throughout, turned their heads away and began to talk of something else, with an expression which I afterwards learnt that good-natured people assume when a very young man has told them a manifest string of lies an expression which says, Yes, we know he is lying, and why he is doing it, the poor young fellow. What I had said about Prince Ivan Ivanovich having a country villa I had related simply because I could find no other pretext for mentioning both my relationship to the Prince and the fact that I had been to luncheon with him that day. Yet why I had said all that I had about the balustrading costing three hundred eighty thousand roubles and about my having several times visited the Prince at that villa—I had never once been there, more especially since the Prince possessed no residences save in Moscow and Naples, as the Nekhludoffs very well knew—I could not possibly tell you. Neither in childhood, nor in adolescence, nor in riper years, did I ever remark in myself the vice of falsehood. On the contrary, I was, if anything, too outspoken and truthful. Yet during this first stage of my manhood I often found myself seized with a strange and unreasonable tendency to lie in the most desperate fashion—I say advisedly, in the most desperate fashion, for the reason that I lied in matters in which it was the easiest thing in the world to detect me. On the whole, I think that a vainglorious desire to appear different from what I was, combined with an impossible hope that the lie would never be found out, was the chief cause of this extraordinary impulse. After tea, since the rain had stopped and the afterglow of sunset was calm and clear, the Princess proposed that we should go and stroll in the lower garden, and admire her favourite spots there. Following my rule to be always original, and conceiving that clever people like myself and the Princess must surely be above the banalities of politeness, I replied that I could not bear a walk with no object in view, and that if I did walk, I liked to walk alone. I had no idea that this speech was simply rude. All I thought was that even as nothing could be more futile than empty compliments, so nothing could be more pleasing and original than a little frank brusquerie. However, though much pleased with my answer, I set out with the rest of the company. The Princess's favourite spot of all was at the very bottom of the lower garden, where a little bridge spanned a narrow piece of swamp. The view there was very restricted, yet very intimate and pleasing. We are so accustomed to confound art with nature that often enough phenomena of nature which are never to be met with in pictures seem to us unreal, and give us the impression that nature is unnatural, or vice versa. Whereas phenomena of nature which occur with too much frequency in pictures seem to us hackneyed, and views which are to be met with in real life, but which appear to us too penetrated with a single idea or a single sentiment, seem to us arabesques. The view from the Princess's favourite spot was as follows. On the further side of a small lake, overgrown with weeds round its edges, rose a steep ascent covered with bushes and with huge old trees of many shades of green, while, overhanging the lake at the foot of the ascent, stood an ancient birch-tree which, though partly supported by stout roots, implanted in the marshy bank of the lake, rested its crown upon a tall, straight poplar and dangled its curved branches over the smooth surface of the pond, both branches and the surrounding greenery being reflected therein as in a mirror. "'How lovely!' said the Princess with a nod of her head, and addressing to no one in particular. "'Yes, marvelous." I replied in my desire to show that I had an opinion of my own on every subject, yet somehow it all looks to me so terribly like a scheme of decoration.' The Princess went on-gazing at the scene as though she had not heard me, and turning to her sister and Lubov Sarajevna at intervals in order to point out to them its details, especially a curved, pendant bow with its reflection in the water, which particularly pleased her. Sofia Ivanovna observed to me that it was all very beautiful, and that she and her sister would sometimes spend hours together at this spot. Yet it was clear that her remarks were meant merely to please the Princess. I have noticed that people who are gifted with the faculty of loving are seldom receptive to the beauties of nature. Lubov's Sergeyevna also seemed enraptured, and asked, among other things, how does that birch-tree manage to support itself? Has it stood there long? Yet the next moment she became absorbed in contemplation of her little dog Susetka, which with its stumpy paws pattering to and fro upon the bridge in a mincing fashion, seemed to say by the expression of its face that this was the first time it had ever found itself out of doors. As for Dmitri, he fell to discoursing very logically to his mother on the subject of how no view can be beautiful of which the horizon is limited. Veronika alone said nothing. Glancing at her I saw that she was leaning over the parapet of the bridge, her profile turned towards me, and gazing straight in front of her, something seemed to be interesting her deeply, or even affecting her, since it was clear that she was oblivious to her surroundings—and thinking neither of herself nor of the fact that any one might be regarding her. In the expression of her large eyes there was nothing but rapt attention and quiet, concentrated thought, while her whole attitude seemed so unconstrained, and for all her shortness so dignified, that once more some recollection or another touched me and once more I asked myself, Is it, then, beginning? Yet again I assured myself that I was already in love with Sonechka, and that Veronika was only an ordinary girl, the sister of my friend. Though she pleased me at that moment, I somehow felt a vague desire to show her, by word or deed, some small unfriendliness. "'I tell you what, Dmitri,' I said to my friend, as I moved nearer, to Veronica, so that she might overhear what I was going to say, it seems to me that even if there had been no mosquitos here there would have been nothing to commend this spot, whereas—and here I slapped my cheek, and in very truth annihilated one of those insects—it is simply awful. "'Then you do not care for nature?' said Veronica, without turning her head. "'I think it a foolish, futile pursuit,' I replied, well satisfied that I had said something to annoy her, as well as something original. Veronica only raised her eyebrows a little with an expression of pity and went on gazing in front of her as calmly as before. I felt vexed with her, yet for all that the rusty paint-blistered parapet on which she was leaning, the way in which the dark waters of the pond reflected the drooping branch of the overhanging birch tree-it almost seemed to me as though branch and its reflection met-the rising odor of the swamp, the feeling of crushed mosquito on my cheek, and her absorbed look and statuesque pose, many times afterwards did these things recur with unexpected vividness to my recollection. CHAPTER Twenty Seven. DIMITRI When we returned to the house from our stroll, Varenika declined to sing as she usually did in the evenings, and I was conceited enough to attribute this to my doing, in the belief that its reason lay in what I had said on the bridge. The Nekladovs never had supper, and went to bed early, while to-night, since Dmitri had the toothache, as Sofia Ivanovna had foretold, he departed with me to his room even earlier than usual, feeling that I had done all that was required of me by my blue collar and gilt buttons, and that every one was very pleased with me, I was in a gratified, complacent mood, while Dmitri, on the other hand, was rendered by his quarrel with his sister and the toothache both taciturn and gloomy. He sat down at the table, got out a couple of notebooks, a diary, and the copy-book in which it was his custom every evening to inscribe the tasks performed by or awaiting him, and continually frowning and touching his cheek with his hand, continued writing for a while. "'Oh, do leave me alone!' he cried to the maid, whom Sofia Ivanovna sent to ask him whether his teeth were still hurting him, and whether he would not like to have a poultice made. Then, saying that my bed would soon be ready for me and that he would be back presently, he departed to Lubov Sergievna's room. "'What a pity that Veronika is not good-looking, and in general Sonetchka. I reflected when I found myself alone. "'How nice it would be if, after I've left the university, I could go to her and offer her my hand. I would say to her,—'Princess, though no longer young and therefore unable to love passionately, I will cherish you as a dear sister. And you—' I would continue to her mother, I greatly respect, and you, Sofia Ivanovna, I value highly. Therefore say to me, Veronika, since I ask you to be my wife, just the simple and direct word, yes, and she would give me her hand, and I should press it and say, mine is a love which depends not upon words but upon deeds. And suppose next came into my head that Dmitri should suddenly fall in love with Lubotshka as Lubotshka has already done with him, and should desire to marry her, then either one or the other of us would have to resign all thought of marriage. Well, it would be splendid, for in that case I should act thus. As soon as I had noticed how things were, I should make no remark but go to Dmitri and say, It is no use, my friend, for you and I to conceal our feelings from one another. You know that my love for your sister will terminate only with my life. Yet I know all and though you have deprived me of all hope, and have rendered me an unhappy man, so that Nicholas Erteneev will have to bewail his misery for the rest of his existence, yet do you take my sister?" and I should lay his hand in Lubotshka's. Then he would say to me, "'No, not for all the world,' and I should reply, "'Prince Nekhludoff, it is in vain for you to attempt to outdo me in nobility.' Not in the whole world does there exist a more magnanimous being than Nicholas Urteniev." then I should salute him and depart. In tears Dmitri and Lubotshka would pursue me, and entreat me to accept their sacrifice, and I should consent to do so, and perhaps be happy ever afterwards, if only I were in love with Veronika. These fancies tickled my imagination so pleasantly that I felt as though I should like to communicate them to my friend. Yet, despite our mutual vow of frankness, I also felt as though I had not the physical energy to do so. Dmitri returned from Lubov Sergeyevna's room with some toothache capsules which she had given him, yet in even greater pain, and therefore in even greater depression, than before. Evidently no bedroom had yet been prepared for me, so presently the boy who acted as Dmitri's valet arrived to ask him where I was to sleep. "'Oh, go to the devil!' cried Dmitri, stamping his foot. "'Vesika! Vesika! Vesika!' he went on, the instant that the boy had left the room with a gradual raising of his voice at each repetition. "'Vesika, lay me out a bed on the floor.' "'No, let ME sleep on the floor,' I objected. "'Well, it is all one. Lie anywhere you like,' continued Dmitri, in the same angry tone. Vasika, why don't you go and do what I tell you?' Evidently Vasika did not understand what was demanded of him, for he remained where he was. "'What is the matter with you? Go and lay the bed, Vesika. I tell you shouted Dmitri, suddenly bursting into a sort of frenzy. Yet Vesika still did not understand, but blushing hotly stood motionless. "'So you are determined to drive me mad, are you?' And leaping from his chair and rushing upon the boy, Dmitri struck him on the head with the whole weight of his fist, until the boy rushed headlong from the room. Halting in the doorway, Dmitri glanced at me, and the expression of fury and pain which had sat for a moment on his countenance suddenly gave place to such a boyish, kindly, affectionate, yet ashamed expression that I felt sorry for him, and reconsidered my intention of leaving him to himself. He said nothing, but for a long time paced the room in silence, occasionally glancing at me with the same deprecatory expression as before. Then he took his notebook from the table, wrote something in it, took off his jacket and folded it carefully, and, stepping into the corner where the icon hung, knelt down, and began to say his prayers, with his large white hands folded upon his breast. So long did he pray that Visika had time to bring a mattress and spread it, under my whispered directions, on the floor. Indeed, I had undressed and laid myself down upon the mattress before Dmitri had finished. As I contemplated his slightly rounded back and the soles of his feet, which somehow seemed to stick out in my direction in a sort of repentant fashion whenever he made his obeisances, I felt that I liked him more than ever, and debated within myself whether or not I should tell him all I had been fancying concerning our respective sisters. When he had finished his prayers, he lay down upon the bed near me, and, propping himself upon his elbow, looked at me in silence, with a kindly yet abashed expression. Evidently he found it difficult to do this, yet meant thus to punish himself. Then I smiled and returned his gaze, and he smiled back at me. "'Why do you not tell me that my conduct has been abominable?' he said. "'You have been thinking so, have you not?' "'Yes,' I replied. And although it was something quite different which had been in my mind, it now seemed to me that that was what I had been thinking. "'Yes, it was not right of you, nor should I have expected it of you. It pleased me particularly at that moment to call him by the familiar second-person singular. "'But how are your teeth now?' I added. "'Oh, so much better, Nikolinka, my friend.' he went on, and so feelingly that it sounded as though tears were standing in his eyes. I know and feel that I am bad, but God sees how I try to be better, and how I entreat Him to make me so. Yet what am I to do with such an unfortunate, horrible nature as mine? What am I to do with it? I try to keep myself in hand and to rule myself, but suddenly it becomes impossible for me to do so—at all events, impossible for me to do so unaided. I need the help and support of some one. Now, there is Lubov Sergievna; She understands me, and could help me in this, and I know by my notebook that I have greatly improved in this respect during the past year. Ah, my dear Nikolinka—he spoke with the most unusual and unwanted tenderness, and in a tone which had grown calmer now that he had made his confession—how much the influence of a woman like Lubov could do for me! Think how good it would be for me if I could have a friend like her to live with! when I have become independent. With her I should be another man." And upon that Dmitri began to unfold to me his plans for marriage, for a life in the country, and for continual self-discipline. "'Yes, I will live in the country,' he said, "'and you shall come to see me when you have married Sonetchka. Our children shall play together. All this may seem to you stupid and ridiculous, yet it may very well come to pass.' "'Yes, it very well may,' I replied with a smile, yet thinking how much nicer it would be if I married his sister. "'I tell you what,' he went on presently, "'you only imagine yourself to be in love with Sonetchka, whereas I can see that it is all rubbish, and that you do not really know what love means.' I did not protest, for in truth I almost agreed with him, and for a while we lay without speaking. Probably you have noticed that I have been in my old bad humour to-day and have had a nasty quarrel with Varya he resumed. I felt bad about it afterwards, more particularly since it occurred in your presence, although she thinks wrongly on some subjects. She is a splendid girl, and very good, as you will soon recognize. His quick transition from mention of my love affairs to praise of his sister pleased me extremely, and made me blush, but I nevertheless said nothing more about his sister, and we went on talking of other things. Thus we chattered until the cocks had crowed twice. In fact, the pale dawn was already looking in at the window, when at last Dmitri lay down upon his bed and put out the candle. "'Well, now for sleep,' he said. "'Yes,' I replied. "'But—' "'But what?' "'How nice it is to be alive in the daylight!' "'Yes, it is a splendid thing,' he replied in a voice which even in the darkness enabled me to see the expression of his cheerful, kindly eyes. And boyish smile. Chapter Twenty Eight, In the Country. Next day, Woloda and myself departed in a post chaise for the country, turning over various Moscow recollections in my head as we drove along. I suddenly recalled Sonetchka Valakin, though not until evening, and when we had already covered five stages of the road. It is a strange thing, I thought, that I should be in love and yet have forgotten all about it. I must start and think about her. And straightway I proceeded to do so, but only in the way that one thinks when travelling—that is to say, disconnectedly, though vividly. Thus I brought myself to such a condition that for the first two days after our arrival home I somehow considered it incumbent upon me always to appear sad and moody in the presence of the household, and especially before Katenka, whom I looked upon as a great connoisseur in matters of this kind and to whom I threw out a hint of the condition in which my heart was situated. Yet for all my attempts at dissimulation and assiduous adoption of such signs of love-sickness as I had occasionally observed in other people, I only succeeded for two days—and that at intervals and mostly towards evening—in reminding myself of the fact that I was in love, and finally, when I had settled down into the new rut of country life and pursuits, I forgot about my affection for Sonechka altogether. We arrived at Petrovsky in the night-time, and I was then so soundly asleep that I saw nothing of the house as we approached it, nor yet of the avenue of birch-trees, nor yet of the household, all of whom had long ago betaken themselves to bed and to slumber. Only old hunchbacked Foka, barefooted, clad in some sort of a woman's wadded night-dress, and carrying a candlestick, opened the door to us. As soon as he saw who we were, He trembled all over with joy, kissed us on the shoulders, hurriedly put on his felt-slippers, and started to dress himself properly. I passed in a semi-waking condition through the porch and up the steps, but in the hall the lock of the door, the bars and the bolts, the crooked boards of the flooring, the chest, the ancient candelabrum splashed all over with grease as of old, the shadows thrown by the crooked, chill, recently lighted stump of candle, the perennially dusty, unopened window behind which I remembered sorrel to have grown—all was so familiar, so full of memories, so intimate of aspect, so, as it were, knit together by a single idea, that I suddenly became conscious of a tenderness for this quiet old house. I involuntarily asked myself, how have we, the house and I, managed to remain apart so long, and, hurrying from spot to spot, ran to see if all the other rooms were still the same. Yes, everything was unchanged, except that everything had become smaller and lower, and I myself taller, heavier, and more filled out. Yet, even as I was, the old house received me back into its arms, and aroused in me, with every board, every window, every step of the stairs, every sound, the shadows of forms, feelings, and events of the happy but irrevocable past. When we entered our old night-nursery all my childish fears lurked once more in the darkness of the corners and doorway. When we passed into the drawing-room I could feel the old calm, motherly love diffusing itself from every object in the apartment. In the breakfast-room the noisy, careless merriment of childhood seemed merely to be waiting to wake to life again. In the devanea whither Foca first conducted us and where he had prepared our beds everything—mirror, screen, old wooden icon—the lumps on the walls, covered with white paper, seemed to speak of suffering and of death and of what would never come back to us again. We got into bed, and Foka, bidding us good-night, retired. It was in this room that Mama died, was it not? said Woloda. I made no reply, but pretended to be asleep. If I had said anything I should have burst into tears. On awaking next morning I beheld papa sitting on Woloda's bed in his dressing-gown and slippers, and smoking a cigar. Leaping up with a merry hoist of the shoulders, he came over to me, slapped me on the back with his great hand, and presented me his cheek to press my lips to. "'Well done, diplomat,' he said in his most kindly jesting tone, as he looked at me with his small bright eyes. "'Woloda tells me you have passed the examinations well for a youngster, and that is a splendid thing. Unless you start and play the fool, I shall have another fine little fellow in you. Thanks, my dear boy. Well, we will have a grand time of it here now, and in the winter perhaps we shall move to St. Petersburg. I only wish the hunting was not over yet, or I could have given you some amusement in that way. Can you shoot, Waldemar? However, whether there is any game or not, I will take you out some day. Next winter, if God pleases, we will move to St. Petersburg and you shall meet people and make friends, for you are now my two young grown-ups. I have been telling Waldemar that you are just starting on your careers, whereas my day is ended. You are old enough now to walk by yourselves, but whenever you wish to confide in me, pray do so, for I am no longer your nurse but your friend. At least I will be your friend and comrade and adviser as much as I can, and more than that I cannot do. How does this fall in with your philosophy at Coco? Well or ill, eh? Of course I said that it fell in with it entirely, and, indeed, I really thought so. That morning papa had a particularly winning, bright, and happy expression on his face, and these new relations between us, as of equals and comrades, made me love him all the more. "'Now tell me,' he went on, "'did you call upon all our kinsfolk and the Iwans? Did you see the old man, and what did he say to you? And did you go to Prince Ivan's? We continued talking so long that before we were fully dressed the sun had left the window of the Devanea, and Yakov, the same old man who of yore had twirled his fingers behind his back and always repeated his words, had entered the room and reported to papa that the carriage was ready. "'Where are you going to?' I asked papa. "'Oh, I had forgotten all about it,' he replied with a cough and the usual hoisting of his shoulder. "'I promised to go and call upon Epifanova to-day. You remember Epifanova, la Belle Flamande don't you, who used to come and see your mamma? They are nice people." And with a self-conscious shrug of his shoulders, so it appeared to me, papa left the room. During our conversation Lubotshka had more than once come to the door and asked, "'Can I come in?' but papa had always shouted to her that she could not do so, since we were not dressed yet. "'What rubbish!' she replied. "'Why, I have seen you in your dressing-gown. "'Never mind. You cannot see your brothers without their inexpressibles,' rejoined Papa. "'If they each of them just go to the door, let that be enough for you. Now go. Even for them to speak to you in such a negligee costume is unbecoming.' "'How unbearable you are!' was Lubotshka's parting retort. "'Well, at least hurry up and come down to the drawing-room, for Mimi wants to see them.' As soon as Papa had left the room I hastened to array myself in my students' uniform and to repair to the drawing-room. Woloda, on the other hand, was in no hurry, but remained sitting on his bed and talking to Yakov about the best places to find Plover and Snipe. As I have said, there was nothing in the world he so much feared as to be suspected of any affection for his father, brother, and sister, so that, to escape any expression of that feeling, he often fell into the other extreme, and affected a coldness which shocked people who did not comprehend its cause. In the hall I collided with Papa, who was hurrying towards the carriage, with short rapid steps. He had a new and fashionable Moscow great coat on, and smelt of scent. On seeing me he gave a cheerful nod, as much as to say, "'Do you remark my splendor?' and once again I was struck with the happy expression of face which I had noted earlier in the morning. The drawing-room looked the same lofty, bright room as of yore with its brown English piano and its large open windows looking on to the green trees and yellowish-red paths of the garden. After kissing Mimi and Lubotshka, I was approaching Katenka for the same purpose, when it suddenly struck me that it might be improper for me to salute her in that fashion. Accordingly I halted, silent and blushing. Katenka, for her part, was quite at her ease, as she held out a white hand to me and congratulated me on my passing into the university. The same thing took place when Woloda entered the drawing-room, and met Katenka. Indeed, it was something of a problem how, after being brought up together and seeing one another daily, we ought now, after this first separation, to meet again. Katenka had grown better-looking than any of us, yet Woloda seemed not at all confused, as, with a slight bow to her, he crossed over to Lubachka, made a jesting remark to her, and then departed somewhere on some solitary expedition. End of section seven. Recording by Bill Borst. Section eight of Youth by Leo Tolstoy, translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section eight, chapters twenty-nine through thirty-two. Chapter twenty-nine. RELATIONS BETWEEN THE GIRLS AND OURSELVES Of the girls Woloda took the strange view that, although he wished that they should have enough to eat, should sleep well, be well dressed, and avoid making such mistakes in French as would shame him before strangers, he would never admit that they could think or feel like human beings, still less that they could converse with him sensibly about anything. Whenever they addressed to him a serious question—a thing, by the way, which he always tried to avoid such as asking his opinion on a novel or inquiring about his doings at the university, he invariably pulled a grimace, and either turned away without speaking or answered with some nonsensical French phrase, « Comme c'est très joli!» or the like, or again, feigning to look serious and stolidly wise, he would say something absolutely meaningless and bearing no relation whatever to the question asked him, or else suddenly exclaim, with a look of pretended unconsciousness, the word or Poyachali, or Kapustu respectively roll of butter, away, and cabbage, or something of the kind, and when afterwards I happened to repeat these words to him as having been told me by Lubachka or Katenka, he would always remark, Hm! So you actually care about talking to them. I can see you are a duffer still." And one needed to see and hear him to appreciate the profound, immutable contempt which echoed in this remark. He had been grown up now two years, and was in love with every good-looking woman that he met. Yet, despite the fact that he came in daily contact with Katenka, who during those two years had been wearing long dresses and was growing prettier every day, the possibility of his falling in love with her never seemed to enter his head—whether this proceeded from the fact that the prosaic recollections of childhood were still too fresh in his memory, or whether from the aversion which very young people feel for everything domestic, or whether from the common human weakness which, at a first encounter with anything fair and pretty, leads a man to say to himself, Ah! I shall meet much more of the same kind during my life. But at all events Woloda had never yet looked upon Katenka with a man's eyes. All that summer Woloda appeared to find things very wearisome a fact which arose out of that contempt for us all which as i have said he made no effort to conceal his expression of face seemed to be constantly saying "Phew! how it bores me to have no one to speak to the first thing in the morning he would go out shooting or sit reading a book in his room and not dress until luncheon-time indeed if papa was not at home he would take his book into that meal and go on reading it without addressing so much as a single word to any one of us who felt somehow guilty in his presence In the evening, too, he would stretch himself on a settee in the drawing-room, and either go to sleep, propped on his pillow, or tell us farcical stories—sometimes stories so improper as to make Mimi grow angry and blush, and ourselves die with laughter. At other times he would not condescend to address a single serious word to any member of the family except Papa, or occasionally myself. Involuntarily I offended against his view of girls, seeing that I was not so afraid of seeming affectionate as he— and, moreover, had not such a profound and confirmed contempt for young women. Yet several times that summer, when driven by lack of amusement to try and engage Lubotshka and Katenka in conversation, I always encountered in them such an absence of any capacity for logical thinking, and such an ignorance of the simplest, most ordinary matters as, for instance, the nature of money, the subjects studied at universities, the effect of war, and so forth as well as such indifference to my explanations of such matters, that these attempts of mine only ended in confirming my unfavourable opinion of feminine ability. I remember one evening when Lobotchka kept repeating some unbearably tedious passage on the piano about a hundred times in succession, while Woloda, who was dozing on a settee in the drawing-room, kept addressing no one in particular as he muttered, "'Lord, how she murders it! What a musician! What a Beethoven!' He always pronounced the composer's name with a special irony—'Wrong again! Now a second time! That's it!' and so on. Meanwhile Katenka and I were sitting by the tea-table, and somehow she began to talk about her favourite subject—love. I was in the right frame of mind to philosophize, and began by loftily defining love as the wish to acquire in another what one does not possess in oneself. To this Katenka retorted that, on the contrary, love is not love at all if a girl desires to marry a man for his money alone, but that, in her opinion, riches were a vain thing, and true love only the affection which can stand the test of separation. This I took to be a hint concerning her love for Dubkoff. At this point Woloda, who must have been listening all the time, raised himself on his elbow, and cried out some rubbish or another, and I felt that he was right. Apart from the general faculties, more or less developed in different persons, of intellect, sensibility, and artistic feeling, there also exists, more or less developed in different circles of society, and especially in families, a private or individual faculty which I may call apprehension. The essence of this faculty lies in sympathetic appreciation of proportion, and in identical understanding of things. Two individuals who possess this faculty and belong to the same social circle, or the same family apprehend an expression of feeling precisely to the same point—namely, the point beyond which such expression becomes mere phrasing. Thus they apprehend precisely where commendation ends and irony begins, where attraction ends and pretense begins, in a manner which would be impossible for persons possessed of a different order of apprehension. Persons possessed of identical apprehension view objects in an identically ludicrous, beautiful, or repellent light. And in order to facilitate such identical apprehension between members of the same social circle or family, they usually establish a language, turns of speech, or terms to define such shades of apprehension as exist for them alone. In our particular family such apprehension was common to Papa, Waloda, and myself, and was developed to the highest pitch. Dubkov also approximated to our coterie in apprehension, but Dmitri, though infinitely more intellectual than Dubkoff, was grosser in this respect. With no one, however, did I bring this faculty to such a point as with Woloda, who had grown up with me under identical conditions. Papa stood a long way from us, and much that was to us as clear as two and two make four was to him incomprehensible. For instance, I and Woloda managed to establish between ourselves the following terms, with meanings to correspond. Isium, raisins, meant a desire to boast of one's money. Shishka, bump or swelling, on pronouncing which one had to join one's fingers together, and to put a particular emphasis upon the two sh's in the word, meant anything fresh, healthy, and comely, but not elegant. A substantive used in the plural meant an undue partiality for the object which it denoted, and so forth, and so forth. At the same time the meaning depended considerably upon the expression of the face and the context of the conversation, so that no matter what new expression one of us might invent to define a shade of feeling, the other could immediately understand it by a hint alone. The girls did not share this faculty of apprehension and herein lay the chief cause of our moral estrangement, and of the contempt which we felt for them. It may be that they too had their apprehension, but it so little ran with ours that where we already perceived the phrasing they still saw only the feeling. Our irony was for them truth, and so on. At that time I had not yet learnt to understand that they were in no way to blame for this, and that absence of such apprehension in no way prevented them from being good and clever girls. Accordingly, I looked down upon them. Moreover, having once lit upon my precious idea of frankness, and being bent upon applying it to the full in myself, I thought the quiet, confiding nature of Lubachka guilty of secretiveness and dissimulation, simply because she saw no necessity for digging up and examining all her thoughts and instincts. For instance, the fact that she always signed the sign of the cross over Papa before going to bed that she and Katenka invariably wept in church when attending Requiem Masses for Mama, and that Katenka sighed and rolled her eyes about when playing the piano. All these things seemed to me sheer make-believe, and I asked myself, at what period did they learn to pretend like grown-up people, and how can they bring themselves to do it? CHAPTER Thirty: HOW I EMPLOYED MY TIME Nevertheless, the fact that that summer I developed a passion for music caused me to become better friends with the ladies of our household than I had been for years. In the spring a young fellow came to see us, armed with a letter of introduction, who, as soon as ever he entered the drawing-room, fixed his eyes upon the piano, and kept gradually edging his chair closer to it as he talked to Mimi and Katenka. After discoursing a while of the weather and the amenities of country life, he skillfully directed the conversation to piano tuners, music, and pianos generally, and ended by saying that he himself played, and in truth he did sit down and perform three waltzes, with Mimi, Lubachka, and Katenka grouped about the instrument, and watching him as he did so. He never came to see us again, but his playing, and his attitude when at the piano, and the way in which he kept shaking his long hair, and most of all the manner in which he was able to execute octaves with his left hand—as he first of all played them rapidly with his thumb and little finger, and then slowly closed those members, and then played the octaves afresh—made a great impression upon me. This graceful gesture of his, together with his easy pose and his shaking of hair and successful winning of the Lady's applause by his talent, ended by firing me to take up the piano. Convinced that I possessed both talent and a passion for music, I set myself to learn, and in doing so acted just as millions of the male, still more of the female, sex have done, who try to teach themselves without a skilled instructor, without any real turn for the art, or without the smallest understanding either of what the art can give, or of what ought to be done to obtain the gift. For me music, or rather piano-playing, was simply a means of winning the ladies' good graces through their sensibility. With the help of Katenka I first learnt the notes, incidentally breaking several of them with my clumsy fingers, and then—that is to say, after two months of hard work, supplemented by ceaseless twiddling of my rebellious fingers on my knees after luncheon, and on the pillow when in bed—went on to pieces which I played, so Katenka assured me, with soul, avec homme but altogether regardless of time. My range of pieces was the usual one—waltzes, gallops, romances, arrangements, etc.—all of them of the class of delightful compositions of which any one with a little healthy taste could point out a selection among the better-class works contained in any volume of music and say, These are what you ought not to play, seeing that anything worse, less tasteful, and more silly has never yet been included in any collection of music, but which, probably for that very reason, are to be found on the piano of every Russian lady. True, we also possessed an unfortunate volume which contained Beethoven's Sonat Pathétique and the C minor Sonata, a volume lamed for life by the ladies, more especially by Lubachka, who used to discourse music from it in memory of Mama as well as certain other good pieces which her teacher in Moscow had given her. But among that collection there were likewise compositions of the teacher's own, in the shape of clumsy marches and gallops, and these too Lovotchka used to play. Katenka and I cared nothing for serious works, but preferred, above all things, Le Fou and The Nightingale, the latter of which Katenka would play until her fingers almost became invisible, and which I, too, was beginning to execute with much vigour and some continuity. I had adopted the gestures of the young man of whom I have spoken, and frequently regretted that there were no strangers present to see me play. Soon, however, I began to realize that Liszt and Kalkbrenner were beyond me, and that I should never overtake Katenka. Accordingly, imagining that classical music was easier, as well as partly for the sake of originality, I suddenly came to the conclusion that I loved abstruse German music. I began to go into raptures whenever Lubotshka played the sonat Pathétique, and although, if the truth be told, that work had for years driven me to the verge of distraction, I set myself to play Beethoven, and to talk of him as Beethoven. Yet through all this chopping and changing and pretense, as I now conceive, there may have run in me a certain vein of talent since music sometimes affected me even to tears, and things which particularly pleased me I could strum on the piano afterwards, in a certain fashion, without the score, so that, had any one taught me at that period to look upon music as an end, a grace in itself, and not merely as a means for pleasing womenfolk with the velocity and pseudo-sentiment of one's playing, I might possibly have become a passable musician. The reading of French novels, of which Woloda had brought a large store with him from Moscow, was another of my amusements that summer. At that period, Monte Cristo and Taine's works had just appeared, while I also revelled in stories by Sue, Dumas, and Coq. Even their most unnatural personages and events were for me as real as actuality. And not only was I incapable of suspecting an author of lying, but in my eyes there existed no author at all that is to say, the various personages and events of a book, paraded themselves before me on the printed page as personages and events that were alive and real. And although I had never in my life met such characters as I there read about, I never for a second doubted that I should one day do so. I discovered in myself all the passions described in every novel, as well as a likeness to all the characters, heroes and villains impartially, who figured therein just as a suspicious man finds in himself the signs of every possible disease when reading a book on medicine. I took pleasure both in the cunning designs, the glowing sentiments, the tumultuous events, and the character-drawing of these works. A good man was of the goodness, a bad man of the badness, possible only to the imagination of early youth. Likewise, I found great pleasure in the fact that it was all written in French, and that I could lay to heart the fine words which the fine heroes spoke, and recall them for use some day when engaged in some noble deed. What quantities of French phrases I culled from those books for Kolpikoff's benefit if I should ever meet him again, as well as for hers, when at length I should find her and reveal to her my love! For them both I prepared speeches which should overcome them as soon as spoken. Upon novels, too, I founded new ideals of the moral qualities which I wished to attain. First of all, I wished to be noble in all my deeds and conduct. I used the French word noble instead of the Russian word blagorodny, for the reason that the former has a different meaning to the latter, as the Germans well understood when they adopted noble as Nobel, and differentiated it from Erlich. Next, to be strenuous and, lastly, to be what I already inclined to be, namely, comme il faut. I even tried to approximate my appearance and bearing to that of the heroes who possessed these qualities. In particular I remember how in one of the hundred or so novels which I read that summer there was a very strenuous hero, with heavy eyebrows, and that I so greatly wished to resemble him—I felt that I did so already from a moral point of view—that one day When looking at my eyebrows in the glass, I conceived the idea of clipping them in order to make them grow bushier. Unfortunately, after I had started to do so, I happened to clip one spot rather shorter than the rest, and so had to level down the rest to it, with the result that, to my horror, I beheld myself eyebrowless and anything but presentable. However, I comforted myself with the reflection that my eyebrows would soon sprout again as bushy as my hero's and was only perplexed to think how I could explain the circumstance to the household when they next perceived my eyebrowless condition. Accordingly, I borrowed some gunpowder from Woloda, rubbed it on my temples, and set it alight. The powder did not fire properly, but I succeeded in singeing myself sufficiently to avert all suspicion of my pranks. And, indeed, afterwards, when I had forgotten all about my hero, my eyebrows grew again, and much thicker than they had been before. CHAPTER Thirty One, Comilfo. IL faut. Several times in the course of this narrative I have hinted at an idea corresponding to the above French heading, and now feel it incumbent upon me to devote a whole chapter to that idea, which was one of the most ruinous lying notions which ever became engrafted upon my life by my upbringing and my social milieu. The human race may be divided into several categories—rich and poor, good and bad, military and civilian, clever and stupid, and so forth, and so forth. Yet each man has his own favorite fundamental system of division, which he unconsciously uses to class each new person with whom he meets. At the time of which I am speaking, my own favorite fundamental system of division in this respect was into people comme il faut, and people comme ne faut pas—the latter subdivided again into people merely not comme il faut and the lower orders. People comme il faut I respected, and looked upon as worthy to consort with me as my equals. The second of the above categories I pretended merely to despise, but in reality hated, and nourished towards them a kind of feeling of offended personality, while the third category had no existence at all, so far as I was concerned since my contempt for them was too complete this comilophonous of mine lay first and foremost in proficiency in french especially conversational french a person who spoke that language badly at once aroused in me a feeling of dislike why do you try to talk as we do when you haven't a notion how to do it i would seem to ask him with my most venomous and quizzing smile the second condition of comilophoness was long nails that were well kept and clean the third ability to bow dance and converse the fourth and a very important one indifference to everything and a constant air of refined supercilious ennui moreover there were certain general signs which i considered enabled me to tell without actually speaking to a man the class to which he belonged Chief among these signs—the others being the fittings of his rooms, his gloves, his handwriting, his turn-out, and so forth—were his feet. The relation of boots to trousers was sufficient to determine, in my eyes, the social status of a man. Heelless boots with angular toes wedded to narrow, unstrapped trouser ends—these denoted the vulgarian. Boots with narrow, round toes and heels, accompanied either by tight trousers strapped under the instep and fitting close to the leg, or by wide trousers similarly strapped, but projecting in a peak over the toe, these meant the man of mauvais genre, and so on, and so on. It was a curious thing that I, who lacked all ability to become comial il faut, should have assimilated the idea so completely as I did. Possibly it was the fact that it had cost me such enormous labour to acquire that brought about its strenuous development in my mind. I hardly like to think how much of the best and most valuable time of my first sixteen years of existence I wasted upon its acquisition. Yet every one whom I imitated—Woloda, Dubkoff, and the majority of my acquaintances—seemed to acquire it easily. I watched them with envy, and silently toiled to become proficient in French to bow gracefully and without looking at the person whom I was saluting, to gain dexterity in small-talk and dancing, to cultivate indifference and ennui, and to keep my fingernails well trimmed though I frequently cut my finger-ends with the scissors in so doing, and all the time I felt that so much remained to be done if I was ever to attain my end. A room, a writing-table, and equipage I still found it impossible to arrange comme il faut, however much I fought down my aversion to practical matters in my desire to become proficient. Yet everything seemed to arrange itself properly with other people, just as though things could never have been otherwise. Once I remember asking Dubkoff, after much zealous and careful labouring at my fingernails, his own were extraordinarily good—whether his nails had always been as now, or whether he had done anything to make them so. To which he replied that never within his recollection had he done anything to them, and that he could not imagine a gentleman's nails possibly being different. This answer incensed me greatly, for I had not yet learnt that one of the chief conditions of comilfonus was to hold one's tongue about the labour by which it had been acquired. Comilfonus, I looked upon, as not only a great merit, a splendid accomplishment, an embodiment of all the perfection which one must strive to attain but as the one indispensable condition without which there could never be happiness nor glory nor any good whatsoever in this world even the greatest artist or savant or benefactor of the human race would at that time have won from me no respect if he had not also been comil foe a man possessed of comil foeness stood higher than and beyond all possible equality with such people and might well leave it to them to paint pictures to compose music to write books or to do good possibly he might commend them for so doing since why should not merit be commended wherever it be found but he could never stand on a level with them seeing that he was comme il faut and they were not-a quite final and sufficient reason in fact i actually believe that had we possessed a brother or a father or a mother who had not been comme I should have declared it to be a great misfortune for us, and announced that between myself and them there could never be anything in common. Yet neither waste of the golden hours which I consumed in constantly endeavouring to observe the many arduous, unattainable conditions of comilfulness, to the exclusion of any more serious pursuit, nor dislike of and contempt for nine-tenths of the human race, nor disregard of all the beauty that lay outside the narrow circle of comilfulness. Comprised the whole of the evil which the idea wrought in me. The chief evil of all lay in the notion acquired that a man need not strive to become a chinovnik—official, a coach-builder, a soldier, a savant, or anything useful, so long as only he was comme il faut, that by attaining the latter quality he had done all that was demanded of him, and was even superior to most people. Usually, at a given period in youth, and after many errors and excesses, every man recognizes the necessity of his taking an active part in social life, and chooses some branch of labour to which to devote himself. Only with the comme il man does this rarely happen. I have known, and know, very, very many people—old, proud, self-satisfied, and opinionated—who, to the question, if it should ever present itself to them in their world, who have you been?" and what have you ever done, would be unable to reply otherwise than by saying, Je fus un homme très comme il faut. Such a fate was awaiting myself. CHAPTER Thirty Two, YOUTH Despite the confusion of ideas raging in my head, I was at least young, innocent, and free that summer, consequently almost happy. Sometimes I would rise quite early in the morning, for I slept on the open veranda, and the bright horizontal beams of the morning sun would wake me up. Dressing myself quickly, I would tuck a towel and a French novel under my arm, and go off to bathe in the river in the shade of a birch-tree which stood half verst from the house. Next, I would stretch myself on the grass and read, raising my eyes from time to time to look at the surface of the river, where it showed blue in the shade of the trees, at the ripples caused by the first morning breeze, at the yellowing field of rye on the further bank, and at the bright red sheen of the sunlight as it struck lower and lower down the white trunks of the birch-trees, which, ranged in ranks one behind the other, gradually receded into the remote distance of the home park. At such moments I would feel joyously conscious of having within me the same young fresh force of life as nature was everywhere exuding around me. When, however, the sky was overcast with grey clouds of morning and I felt chilly after bathing, I would often start to walk at random through the fields and woods, and joyously trail my wet boots in the fresh dew. All the while my head would be filled with vivid dreams concerning the heroes of my last read novel, and I would keep picturing to myself some leader of an army, or some statesman, or marvellously strong man, or devoted lover, or another, and looking around me in a nervous expectation that I should suddenly descry HER somewhere near me, in a meadow or behind a tree. Yet, whenever these rambles led me near peasants engaged at their work, all my ignoring of the existence of the common people did not prevent me from experiencing an involuntary, overpowering sensation of awkwardness, so that I always tried to avoid their seeing me. When the heat of the day had increased, it was not infrequently my habit if the ladies did not come out of doors for their morning tea, to go rambling through the orchard and kitchen-garden, and to pluck ripe fruit there. Indeed, this was an occupation which furnished me with one of my greatest pleasures. Let any one go into an orchard, and dive into the midst of a tall, thick, sprouting raspberry-bed. Above will be seen the clear, glowing sky, and all around the pale-green, prickly stems of raspberry-trees, where they grow mingled together in a tangle of profusion. At one's feet springs the dark green nettle, with its slender crown of flowers, while the broad-leaved burdock, with its bright pink prickly blossoms, overtops the raspberries, and even one's head, with its luxuriant masses, until, with the nettle, it almost meets the pendent pale-green branches of the apple-trees, where apples round and lustrous as bone, but yet as unripe, are mellowing in the heat of the sun. Below again are seen young raspberry shoots twining themselves around the partially withered, leafless parent plant, and stretching their tendrils toward the sunlight, with green needle-shaped blades of grass and young, dew-coated pods peering through last year's leaves, and growing juicily green in the perennial shade, as though they care nothing for the bright sunshine which is playing on the leaves of the apple-trees above them. In this density there is always moisture always a smell of confined, perpetual shade, of cobwebs, fallen apples, turning black where they roll on the mouldy sod, raspberries, and earwigs of the kind which impel one to reach hastily for more fruit when one has inadvertently swallowed a member of that insect tribe with the last berry. At every step one's movements keep flushing the sparrows which always make their home in these depths, and one hears their fussy chirping and the beating of their tiny, fluttering wings against the stalks and catches the low buzzing of a bumble-bee—somewhere, and the sound of the gardener's footsteps, it is half-daft Acum, on the path as he hums his eternal sing-song to himself. Then one mutters under one's breath, No! neither he nor anyone else shall find me here. Yet still one goes on stripping juicy berries from their conical white pilasters, and cramming them into one's mouth. At length one's legs soaked to the knees as one repeats over and over again some rubbish which keeps running in one's head, and one's hands and nether limbs, despite the protection of one's wet trousers, thoroughly stung with the nettles, one comes to the conclusion that the sun's rays are beating too straight upon one's head for eating to be any longer desirable, and sinking down into the tangle of greenery one remains there, looking and listening, and continuing in mechanical fashion to strip off one or two of the finer berries and swallow them. At eleven o'clock—that is to say, when the ladies had taken their morning tea and settled down to their occupations—I would repair to the drawing-room. Near the first window, with its unbleached linen blind lowered to exclude the sunshine, but through the chink of which the sun kept throwing brilliant circles of light which hurt the eye to look at them, There would be standing a screen, with flies quietly parading the whiteness of its covering. Behind it would be seated Mimi, shaking her head in an irritable manner, and constantly shifting from spot to spot to avoid the sunshine, as at intervals it darted her from somewhere and laid a streak of flame upon her hand or face. Through the other three windows the sun would be throwing three squares of light, crossed with the shadows of the window-frames, and where one of these patches marked the unstained floor of the room, there would be lying, in accordance with invariable custom, Milka, with her ears pricked as she watched the flies promenading the lighted space. Seated on a settee, Katenka would be knitting or reading aloud, as from time to time she gave her white sleeves, looking almost transparent in the sunshine, an impatient shake, or tossed her head with a frown to drive away some fly which had settled upon her thick auburn hair, and was now buzzing in its tangles. Lubachka would either be walking up and down the room, her hands clasped behind her, until the moment should arrive when a movement would be made towards the garden, or playing some piece of which every note had long been familiar to me. For my own part, I would sit down somewhere and listen to the music or the reading until such time as I myself should have an opportunity of performing on the piano. After luncheon, I would condescend to take the girls out riding, since to go for a mere walk at that hour seemed to me unsuitable to my years and position in the world. And these excursions of ours, in which I often took my companions through the unaccustomed spots and dells, were very pleasant. Indeed, on some of these occasions I grew quite boyish, and the girls would praise my riding and daring, and pretend that I was their protector. In the evening, if we had no guests with us, tea, served in the dim veranda, would be followed by a walk around the homestead with papa and then I would stretch myself on my usual settee and read and ponder as of old, as I listened to Katenka or Lubachka playing. At other times, if I was alone in the drawing-room and Lubotshka was performing some old-time air, I would find myself laying my book down and gazing through the open doorway on to the balcony at the pendant, sinuous branches of the tall birch-trees where they stood overshadowed by the coming night, and at the clear sky where, if one looked at it intently enough, misty, yellowish spots would appear suddenly, and then disappear again. Next, as I listened to the sounds of the music wafted from the salon, and to the creaking gates and the voices of the peasant women when the cattle returned to the village, I would suddenly bethink me of Natalia Savishna, and of Mama, and of Karl Ivanitch and become momentarily sad. But in those days my spirit was so full of life and hope that such reminiscences only touched me in passing. And soon fled away again after supper, and sometimes a night stroll with some one in the garden, for I was afraid to walk down the dark avenues by myself. I would repair to my solitary sleeping-place on the veranda, a proceeding which, despite the countless mosquitoes which always devoured me, afforded me the greatest pleasure. If the moon was full, I frequently spent whole nights sitting up on my mattress, looking at the light and shade, listening to the sounds or stillness dreaming of one matter and another, but more particularly of the poetic voluptuous happiness which, in those days, I believed was to prove the acme of my felicity, and lamenting that until now it had only been given me to imagine things. No sooner had every one dispersed, and I had seen lights pass from the drawing-room to the upper chambers, whence female voices would presently be heard, and the noise of windows opening and shutting, than I would depart to the veranda and walk up and down there as I listened attentively to the sounds from the slumbering mansion. To this day, whenever I feel any expectation, no matter how small and baseless, of realizing a fraction of some happiness of which I may be dreaming, I somehow invariably fail to picture to myself what the imagined happiness is going to be like. At the least sound of bare footsteps, or of a cough, or of a snore, or of the rattling of a window, or of the rustling of a dress, I would leap from my mattress and stand furtively gazing and listening, thrown without any visible cause into extreme agitation. But the lights would disappear from the upper rooms, the sounds of footsteps and talking give place to snores, the watchman begin his nightly tapping with his stick, the garden grow brighter and more mysterious as the streaks of light vanished from the windows, the last candle pass from the pantry to the hall, throwing a glimmer into the dewy garden as it did so, and the stooping figure of Foka, decked in a nightcap and carrying the candle, become visible to my eyes as he went to his bed. Often I would find a great and fearful pleasure in stealing over the grass in the black shadow of the house, until I had reached the hall window, where I would stand listening with bated breath to the snoring of the boy, to Foka's gruntings, in the belief that no one heard him, and to the sound of his senile voice as he drawled out the evening prayers. At length even his candle would be extinguished and the window slammed down so that I would find myself utterly alone. Whereupon, glancing nervously from side to side, lest haply I should see the white woman standing near a flower-bed, or by my couch, I would run at full speed back to the veranda. Then, and only then, I would lie down with my face to the garden, and covering myself over so far as possible from the mosquitoes and bats, fall to gazing in front of me as I listened to the sounds of the night and dreamed of love and happiness. At such times everything would take on for me a different meaning—the look of the old birch-trees, with the one side of their curling branches showing bright against the moonlit sky, and the other darkening the bushes and carriage-drive with their black shadows, the calm rich glitter of the pond ever swelling like a sound, the moonlit sparkle of the dew-drops on the flowers in front of the veranda, the graceful shadows of those flowers where they lay thrown upon the gray stonework, the cry of a quail on the far side of the pond, the voice of some one walking on the high road, the quiet, scarcely audible scrunching of two old birch-trees against one another, the humming of a mosquito at my ear under the coverlet, the fall of an apple as it caught against a branch and rustled among the dry leaves, the leapings of frogs as they approached almost to the veranda steps, and sat with the moon shining mysteriously on their green backs. All these things took on for me a strange significance—a significance of exceeding beauty and of infinite love. Before me would rise she, with long black tresses and a high bust, but always mournful in her fairness, with bare hands and voluptuous arms—she loved me. And for one moment of her love I would sacrifice my whole life but the moon would go on rising higher and higher, and shining brighter and brighter in the heavens. The rich sparkle of the pond would swell like a sound, and become ever more and more brilliant, while the shadows would grow blacker and blacker, and the sheen of the moon more and more transparent, until, as I looked at and listened to all this, something would say to me that she, with the bare hands of voluptuous arms, did not represent all happiness that love for her did not represent all good, so that the more I gazed at the full high-riding moon, the higher would true beauty and goodness appear to me to lie, and the purer and purer they would seem, the nearer and nearer to Him who is the source of all beauty and all goodness, and tears of a sort of unsatisfied yet tumultuous joy would fill my eyes. Always, too, I was alone, yet always, too, it seemed to me that, although great, Mysterious nature could draw the shining disc of the moon to herself, and somehow hold in some high and definite place the pale blue sky, and be everywhere around me, and fill of herself the infinity of space while I was but a lowly worm, already defiled with the poor petty passions of humanity. Always it seemed to me that, nevertheless, both nature and the moon and I were one." End of section 8 recording by Bill Borst. Section 9 of Youth by Leo Tolstoy translated by CJ Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapters 33 through 36. Chapter 33 Our Neighbors. On the first day after our arrival I had been greatly astonished that papa should speak of our neighbors—the Epifanovs, as nice people, and still more so that he should go to call upon them. The fact was that we had long been at law over some land with this family, when a child I had more than once heard papa raging over the litigation, abusing the Epifanovs, and warning people so I understood him against them. Likewise I had heard Yakov speak of them as our enemies, and black people, and could remember Mamma requesting that their names should never be mentioned in her presence, nor indeed in the house at all. From these data I, as a child, had arrived at the clear and assured conviction that the Epiphanovs were foemen of ours who would at any time stab or strangle both Papa and his sons, if they should ever come across them as well as that they were black people, in the literal sense of the term. Consequently, when in the year that Mamma died I chanced to catch sight of Abdosia, La Belle Flamande, on the occasion of a visit which she paid to my mother, I found it hard to believe that she did not come of a family of negroes. All the same, I had the lowest possible opinion of the family, and, for all that we saw much of them that summer, continued to be strongly prejudiced against them. As a matter of fact, their household only consisted of the mother, a widow of fifty, but a very well-preserved, cheery old woman, a beautiful daughter named Evdosya, and a son, Peter, who was a stammerer, unmarried, and of very serious disposition. For the last twenty years before her husband's death, Madame Epifanov had lived apart from him, sometimes in St. Petersburg, where she had relatives, but more frequently at her village of Mitishchi which stood some three versts from ours. Yet the neighbourhood had taken to circulating such horrible tales concerning her mode of life, that Messalina was by comparison a blameless child, which was why my mother had requested her name never to be mentioned. As a matter of fact, not one-tenth part of the most cruel of all gossip, the gossip of country houses, is worthy of credence. And although when I first made madame's acquaintance she had living with her in the house a clerk named Mitusha, who had been promoted from a serf, and who curled, pomaded, and dressed in a frock-coat of Circassian pattern, always stood behind his mistress's chair at luncheon, while from time to time she invited her guests to admire his handsome eyes and mouth—there was nothing for gossip to take hold of. I believe, too, that since the time, ten years earlier, when she had recalled her dutiful son Peter from the service, she had wholly changed her mode of living it seems her property had never been a large one—merely a hundred souls or so—this refers, of course, to the days of serfdom—and that during her previous life of gaiety she had spent a great deal. Consequently, when some ten years ago those portions of the property which had been mortgaged and remortgaged had been foreclosed upon and compulsorily sold by auction, she had come to the conclusion that all these unpleasant details of distress upon valuation of her property had been due not so much to failure to pay the interest, as to the fact that she was a woman. Wherefore she had written to her son, then serving with his regiment, to come and save his mother from her embarrassments, and he, like a dutiful son, conceiving that his first duty was to comfort his mother in her old age, had straightway resigned his commission—for all that he had been doing well in his profession, and was hoping soon to become independent—and had come to join her in the country. Despite his plain face, uncouth demeanour, and fault of stuttering, Peter was a man of unswerving principles, and of the most extraordinary good sense. Somehow, by small borrowings, sundry strokes of business, petitions for grace, and promises to repay, he contrived to carry on the property, and, making himself overseer, donned his father's greatcoat still preserved in a drawer, dispensed with horses and carriages, discouraged guests from calling at Mistichi, fashioned his own sleighs, increased his arable land and curtailed that of the serfs, felled his own timber, sold his produce in person, and saw to matters generally. Indeed he swore, and kept his oath, that, until all outstanding debts were paid, he would never wear any clothes than his father's greatcoat and a corduroy jacket which he had made for himself, nor yet ride in aught but a country wagon, drawn by peasants' horses. This stoical mode of life he sought to apply also to his family, so far as the sympathetic respect which he conceived to be his mother's due would allow of, so that, although in the drawing-room he would show her only stuttering servility, and fulfil all her wishes, and blame any one who did not do precisely as she bid them, in his study or his office he would overhaul the cook if she had served up so much as a duck without his orders, or any one responsible for sending a serf even though at madame's own bidding to inquire after a neighbor's health or for dispatching the peasant girls into the wood to gather wild raspberries instead of setting them to weed the kitchen-garden within four years every debt had been repaid and peter had gone to moscow and returned thence in a new jacket and tarantas a two-wheeled carriage yet despite this flourishing position of affairs he still preserved the stoical tendencies in which to tell the truth he took a certain vague pride before his family and strangers, since he would frequently say with a stutter, "'Any one who really wishes to see me will be glad to see me even in my dressing-gown, and to eat nothing but shchi, cabbage soup and kasha—buckwheat-gruel—at my table. That is what I eat myself,' he would add. In his every word and movement spoke pride based upon a consciousness of having sacrificed himself for his mother and redeemed the property, as well as contempt for any one who had not done something of the same kind. The mother and daughter were altogether different characters from Peter, as well as altogether different from one another. The former was one of the most agreeable, uniformly good-tempered, and cheerful women whom one could possibly meet. Anything attractive and genuinely happy delighted her, even the faculty of being pleased with the sight of young people enjoying themselves. It is only in the best-natured of elderly folk that one meets with that trait. She possessed to the full. On the other hand, her daughter was of a grave turn of mind. Rather, she was of that peculiarly careless, absent-minded, gratuitously distant bearing which commonly distinguishes unmarried beauties. Whenever she tried to be gay, her gaiety somehow seemed to be unnatural to her so that she always appeared to be laughing either at herself or at the persons to whom she was speaking, or at the world in general—a thing which possibly she had no real intention of doing. Often I asked myself in astonishment what she could mean when she said something like, "'Yes, I know how terribly good-looking I am,' or, "'Of course everyone is in love with me,' and so forth. Her mother was a person always busy, since she had a passion for housekeeping, gardening, flowers, canaries, and pretty trinkets. Her rooms and garden, it is true, were small and poorly fitted up, yet everything in them was so neat and methodical, and bore such a general air of that gentle gaiety which one hears expressed in a waltz or polka, that the word toy, by which guests often express their praise of it all, exactly suited her surroundings. She herself was a toy, being petite, slender, fresh-coloured, small, and pretty-handed, and invariably gay and well-dressed. The only fault in her was that a slight over-prominence of the dark blue veins on her little hands rather marred the general effect of her appearance. On the other hand, her daughter scarcely ever did anything at all. Not only has she no love for trifling with flowers and trinkets, but she neglected her personal exterior, and only troubled to dress herself well when guests happened to call. Yet, on returning to the room in society costume, she always looked extremely handsome save for that cold, uniform expression of eyes and smile, which is common to all beauties. In fact, her strictly regular, beautiful face and symmetrical figure always seemed to be saying to you—'Yes, you may look at me.' At the same time, for all the mother's liveliness of disposition and the daughter's air of indifference and abstraction, something told one that the former was incapable of feeling affection for anything that was not pretty and gay, but that Avdotia, on the contrary, was one of those natures which, once they love, are willing to sacrifice their whole life for the man they adore. CHAPTER Thirty Four: MY FATHER'S SECOND MARRIAGE My father was forty-eight when he took as his second wife Evdoshia Vasilyevna Epifanov. I suspect that when that spring he had departed for the country with the girls he had been in that communicatively happy sociable mood in which gamblers usually find themselves who have retired from play after winning large stakes. He had felt that he still had a fortune left to him which, so long as he did not squander it on gaming, might be used for our advancement in life. Moreover, it was springtime. He was unexpectedly well supplied with ready money, he was alone, and he had nothing to do. As he conversed with Yakov on various matters, and remembered both the interminable suit with the Epiphanovs and Avdotia's beauty—it was a long while since he had seen her—I can imagine him saying, "'How do you think we ought to act in this suit, Yakov? My idea is simply to let the cursed land go. Eh? What do you think about it?' I can imagine, too, how thus interrogated Yakov twirled his fingers behind his back in a deprecatory sort of way, and proceeded to argue that, all the same, "'Peter Alexandritch, we are in the right.' Nevertheless, I further conjecture, papa ordered the dog-cart to be got ready, put on his fashionable olive-coloured driving-coat, brushed up the remnants of his hair, sprinkled his clothes with scent, and, greatly pleased to think that he was acting à la Seigneur, as well as even more revelling in the prospect of soon seeing a pretty woman, drove off to visit his neighbours. I can imagine, too, that when the flustered housemaid ran to inform Peter Vassilyevitch that Monsieur Ertenyev himself had called— Peter answered angrily, "'Well, what is he come for?' and, stepping softly about the house, first went into his study to put on his old soiled jacket, and then sent down word to the cook that on no account whatever—no, not even if she were ordered to do so by the mistress herself—was she to add anything to luncheon. Since later I often saw Papa with Peter, I can form a very good idea of this first interview between them. I can imagine that, despite Papa's proposal to end the suit in a peaceful manner, Peter was morose and resentful at the thought of having sacrificed his career to his mother, and at Papa having done nothing of the kind—a by no means surprising circumstance, Peter probably said to himself. Next, I can see Papa taking no notice of this ill-humour, but cracking quips and jests while peter gradually found himself forced to treat him as a humorist with whom he felt offended one moment and inclined to be reconciled the next indeed with his instinct for making fun of everything papa often used to address peter as colonel and though i can remember peter once replying with an unusually violent stutter and his face scarlet with indignation that he had never been a colonel but only a lieutenant papa called him colonel again before another 5 minutes were out Lubachka told me that up to the time of Voloda's and my arrival from Moscow there had been daily meetings with the Epifanovs, and that things had been very lively since Papa, who had a genius for arranging everything with a touch of originality and wit, as well as in a simple and refined manner, had devised shooting and fishing-parties and fireworks for the Epifanovs' benefit. All these festivities—so said Lubachka—would have gone off splendidly but for the intolerable Peter who had spoilt everything by his puffing and stuttering after our coming however the epifanovs only visited us twice and we went once to their house while after st peter's day on which it being papa's name-day the epifanovs called upon us in common with a crowd of other guests our relations with that family came entirely to an end and in future only papa went to see them during the brief period when i had opportunities of seeing papa and dunetchka as her mother called Avdotia, together—this is what I remarked about them—papa remained unceasingly in the same buoyant mood as had so greatly struck me on the day after our arrival. So gay and youthful and full of life and happy did he seem that the beams of his felicity extended themselves to all around him, and involuntarily communicated to them a similar frame of mind. He never stirred from Avdotia's side so long as she was in the room but either kept on plying her with sugary sweet compliments which made me feel ashamed for him, or, with his gaze fixed upon her with an air at once passionate and complacent, sat hitching his shoulder and coughing as from time to time he smiled and whispered something in her ear. Yet throughout he wore the same expression of raillery as was peculiar to him even in the most serious matters. As a rule, Avdotia herself seemed to catch the infection of the happiness which sparkled at this period in papa's large blue eyes. Yet there were moments also when she would be seized with such a fit of shyness that I, who knew the feeling well, was full of sympathy and compassion as I regarded her embarrassment. At moments of this kind she seemed to be afraid of every glance and every movement—to be supposing that every one was looking at her, every one thinking of no one but her, and that unfavourably she would glance timidly from one person to another, the colour coming and going in her cheeks, and then begin to talk loudly and defiantly, but for the most part nonsense. Until presently realizing this and supposing that papa and every one else had heard her, she would blush more painfully than ever. Yet papa never noticed her nonsense, for he was too much taken up with coughing and with gazing at her with his look of happy triumphant devotion. I noticed, too, that, although these fits of shyness attacked Avdotia without any visible cause, they not infrequently ensued upon papa's mention of one or another young and beautiful woman. Frequent transitions from depression to that strange, awkward gaiety of hers to which I have referred before the repetition of favourite words and turns of speech of papa's, the continuation of discussions with others which papa had already begun—all these things, if my father had not been the principal actor in the matter, and I had been a little older, would have explained to me the relations subsisting between him and Evdotia. At the time, however, I never surmised them—no, not even when Papa received from her brother Peter a letter which so upset him that not again until the end of August did he go to call upon the Epiphanovs. Then, however, he began his visits once more, and ended by informing us on the day before Woloda and I were to return to Moscow, that he was about to take Evdotia Vasilyevna Epifanov, to be his wife chapter thirty five How We Received the News. Yet, even on the eve of the official announcement, every one had learnt of the matter and was discussing it. Mimi never left her room that day and wept copiously. Katenka kept her company and only came out for luncheon with a grieved expression on her face, which was manifestly borrowed from her mother. Lubachka, on the contrary, was very cheerful, and told us after luncheon that she knew of a splendid secret which she was going to tell no one. "'There is nothing so splendid about your secret,' said Woloda, who did not in the least share her satisfaction. If you were capable of any serious thought at all, you would understand that it is a very bad look-out for us." Lubachka stared at him in amazement, and said no more. After the meal was over, Woloda made a feint of taking me by the arm, and then, fearing that this would seem too much like affection, nudged me gently by the elbow, and beckoned me towards the salon. "'You know, I suppose, what the secret is of which Lubotshka was speaking?' he said, when he was sure that we were alone. It was seldom that he and I spoke together in confidence with the result that, whenever it came about, we felt a kind of awkwardness in one another's presence, and boys began to jump about in our eyes as Woloda expressed it. On the present occasion, however, he answered the excitement in my eyes with a grave fixed look which said, "'You need not be surprised, for we are brothers, and we have to consider an important family matter.' I understood him, and he went on. "'You know, I suppose, that papa is going to marry Avdotia I nodded, for I had already heard so. "'Well, it is not a good thing,' continued Woloda. "'Why so?' "'Why,' he repeated irritably, "'because it will be so pleasant, won't it, to have this stuttering Colonel and all his family for relations. Certainly she seems nice enough, as yet. But who knows what she will turn out to be later. It won't matter much to you or myself, but Lubachka will soon be making her debut and it will hardly be nice for her to have such a belle-mere as this—a woman who speaks French badly, and has no manners to teach her." Although it seemed odd to hear Woloda criticizing Papa's choice so coolly, I felt that he was right. "'Why is he marrying her?' I asked. "'Oh, it is a hole-and-corner business, and God only knows why,' he answered. "'All I know is that her brother Peter tried to make conditions about the marriage and that, although at first papa would not hear of them, he afterwards took some fancy or knight-errantry or other into his head. But, as I say, it is a hole-and-corner business. I am only just beginning to understand my father. The fact that Woloda called papa my father, instead of papa, somehow hurt me. And though I can see that he is kind and clever, he is irresponsible, and frivolous to a degree, that—well, the whole thing is astonishing. He cannot so much as look upon a woman calmly. You yourself know how he falls in love with every one that he meets. You know it, and so does Mimi." "'What do you mean?' I said. "'What I say. Not long ago I learnt that he used to be in love with Mimi herself when he was a young man, and that he used to send her poetry, and that there really was something between them. Mimi is heart-sore about it to this day.' And Woloda burst out laughing. "'Impossible!' I cried in astonishment. But the principal thing at this moment went on Woloda, becoming serious again, and relapsing into French, is to think how delighted all our relations will be with this marriage—why, she will probably have children! Woloda's prudence and forethought struck me so forcibly that I had no answer to make. Just at this moment Lubotshka approached us. "'So you know?' she said with a joyful face. "'Yes,' said Woloda. "'Still, I am surprised at you, Lubachka. You are no longer a baby in long clothes. Why should you be so pleased because papa is going to marry a piece of trash?" At this Lubotshka's face fell, and she became serious. "'Oh, Woloda! she exclaimed. "'Why, a piece of trash, indeed! How can you dare to speak of Evdosya like that? If papa is going to marry her, she cannot be trash.' "'No, not trash, so to speak, but—' "'No buts at all,' interrupted Lubotshka, flaring up. "'You have never heard me call the girl whom you are in love with trash.' How, then, can you speak so of papa and a respectable woman? Although you are my elder brother, I won't allow you to speak like that. You ought not to." "'Mayn't I even express an opinion about—' "'No, you mayn't,' repeated Lovachka. "'No one ought to criticize such a father as ours. Mimi has the right to, but not you, however much you may be the eldest brother.' "'Oh, you don't understand anything,' said Woloda contemptuously. "'Try and do so.' How can it be a good thing that a Dunetchka of an Epifanov should take the place of our dead mamma? For a moment Lubotshka was silent. Then the tears suddenly came into her eyes. "'I knew that you were conceited. But I never thought that you could be cruel,' she said, and left us." "'Pshaw!' said Woloda, pulling a serial-comic face and make-believe stupid eyes. That's what comes of arguing with them. Evidently he felt that he was at fault in having so far forgot himself as to descend to discuss matters at all with Lubotshka. Next day the weather was bad, and neither papa nor the ladies had come down to morning tea when I entered the drawing-room. There had been cold rain in the night, and remnants of the clouds from which it had descended were still scudding across the sky, with the sun's luminous disk, not yet risen to any great height, showing faintly through them. It was a windy, damp, gray morning the door into the garden was standing open and pools left by the night's rain were drying on the damp blackened flags of the terrace the open door was swinging on its iron hinges in the wind and all the paths looked wet and muddy the old birch trees with their naked white branches the bushes the turf the nettles the currant trees the elders with the pale side of their leaves turned upwards all were dashing themselves about and looking as though they were trying to wrench themselves free from their roots From the avenue of lime-trees showers of round yellow leaves were flying through the air in tossing, eddying circles, and strewing the wet road and soaked aftermath of the hayfield with a clammy carpet. At the moment my thoughts were wholly taken up with my father's approaching marriage, and with the point of view from which Woloda regarded it. The future seemed to me to bode no good for any of us. I felt distressed to think that a woman who was not only a stranger, but young, should be going to associate with us in so many relations of life, without having any right to do so—nay, that this young woman was going to usurp the place of our dead mother. I felt depressed, and kept thinking more and more that my father was to blame in the matter. Presently I heard his voice, and Woloda's speaking together, in the pantry, and not wishing to meet papa just then, had just left the room when I was pursued by Lobachka, who said that papa wanted to see me. He was standing in the drawing-room, with his hand resting on the piano, and was gazing in my direction with an air at once grave and impatient. His face no longer wore the youthful, gay expression which had struck me for so long, but on the contrary looked sad. Woloda was walking about the room with a pipe in his hand. I approached my father and bade him good morning. "'Well, my children,' he said firmly, with a lift of his head, and in the peculiarly hurried manner of one who wishes to announce something obviously unwelcome, but no longer admitting of reconsideration. You know, I suppose, that I am going to marry Evdosia Epifanov. He paused a moment. Hitherto I had no desire for any one to succeed your mother, but—and again he paused—it It—it is evidently my fate. Dinechka is an excellent, kind girl, and no longer in her first youth. I hope, therefore, my children, that you will like her, and she I know will be sincerely fond of you, for she is a good woman and now—he went on, addressing himself more particularly to Woloda and myself, and having the appearance of speaking hurriedly in order to prevent us from interrupting him—'It is time for you to depart, while I myself am going to stay here until the new year, and then to follow you to Moscow, with—'—'Again he hesitated a moment—'my wife and Lubotshka. It hurt me to see my father standing as though abashed and at fault before us so I moved a little nearer him, but Woloda only went on walking about the room with his head down, and smoking. "'So, my children, that is what your old father has planned to do,' concluded Papa, reddening, coughing, and offering Woloda and myself his hands. Tears were in his eyes as he said this, and I noticed, too, that the hand which he was holding out to Woloda, who at that moment chanced to be at the other end of the room, was shaking slightly. The sight of that shaking hand gave me an unpleasant shock, for I remembered that papa had served in 1812, and had been, as every one knew, a brave officer. Seizing the great veiny hand, I covered it with kisses, and he squeezed mine hard in return. Then, with a sob amid his tears, he suddenly threw his arms around Lubotshka's dark head, and kissed her again and again on the eyes. Woloda pretended that he had dropped his pipe, and bending down wiped his eyes furtively with the back of his hand. Then, endeavouring to escape notice, he left the room. CHAPTER Thirty Six. THE UNIVERSITY The wedding was to take place in two weeks' time, but as our lectures had begun already, Woloda and myself were forced to return to Moscow at the beginning of September. The Nekhludoffs had also returned from the country, and Dmitri, with whom on parting I had made an agreement that we should correspond frequently with the result, of course, that we had never once written to one another, came to see us immediately after our arrival, and arranged to escort me to my first lecture on the morrow. It was a beautiful sunny day. No sooner had I entered the auditorium than I felt my personality entirely disappear amid the swarm of light-hearted youths who were seething tumultuously through every doorway and corridor under the influence of the sunlight pouring through the great windows. I found the sense of being a member of this huge community very pleasing, yet there were few among the throng whom I knew, and that only on terms of a nod and a how-do-you-do, Ertenieff. All around me men were shaking hands and chatting together. From every side came expressions of friendship, laughter, jests, and badinage everywhere I could feel the tie which bound this youthful society in one, and everywhere too I could feel that it left me out. Yet this impression lasted for a moment only, and was succeeded, together with the vexation which it had caused, by the idea that it was best that I should not belong to that society, but keep to my own circle of gentlemen. Wherefore, I proceeded to seat myself upon the third bench, with as neighbours Count B., Baron Z., the Prince R., Iwan, and some other young men of the same class, with none of whom, however, I was acquainted save with Iwan and Count B. Yet the look which these young gentlemen threw at me at once made me feel that I was not of their set, and I turned to observe what was going on around me. Semenoff, with grey matted hair, white teeth, and tunic flying open, was seated a little distance off, and leaning forward on his elbows as he nibbled a pen, while the gymnasium student who had come out first in the examinations had established himself on the front bench, and, with a black stock coming halfway up his cheek, was toying with the silver watch-chain which adorned his satin waistcoat. On a bench in a raised part of the hall I could descry Ikonin, evidently he had contrived to enter the university somehow and hear him fussily proclaiming, in all the glory of blue piped trousers which completely hid his boots, that he was now seated on Parnassus. Ilinka, who had surprised me by giving me a bow not only cold but supercilious, as though to remind me that here we were all equals, was just in front of me, with his legs resting in free-and-easy style on another bench—a hit, somehow, I thought, at myself—and conversing with a student as he threw occasional glances in my direction. Iwan's set by my side were talking in French, yet every word which I overheard of their conversation seemed to me both stupid and incorrect. Ce n'est pas Francais, I thought to myself, while all the attitudes, utterances, and doings of Semenov, Elinka, and the rest struck me as uniformly coarse, ungentlemanly, and comme il ne faut pas. Thus attached to no particular set, I felt isolated and unable to make friends, and so grew resentful. One of the students on the bench in front of me kept biting his nails, which were raw to the quick already, and this so disgusted me that I edged away from him. In short, I remember finding my first day a most depressing affair. When the professor entered, and there was a general stir and a cessation of chatter, I remember throwing a scornful glance at him as also that he began his discourse with a sentence which I thought devoid of meaning. I had expected the lecture to be, from first to last, so clever that not a word ought to be taken from or added to it. Disappointed in this, I at once proceeded to draw beneath the heading First Lecture, with which I had adorned my beautifully bound notebook no less than eighteen faces in profile, joined together on a sort of chaplet, and only occasionally moved my hand along the page in order to give the professor, who I felt sure must be greatly interested in me, the impression that I was writing something. In fact, at this very first lecture I came to the decision, which I maintained to the end of my course, namely, that it was unnecessary, and even stupid, to take down every word said by every professor. At subsequent lectures, however, I did not feel my isolation so strongly, since I made several acquaintances and got into the way of shaking hands and entering into conversation yet for some reason or another no real intimacy ever sprang up between us, and I often found myself depressed and only feigning cheerfulness. With the set which comprised Iwin and the aristocrats as they were generally known, I could not make any headway at all, for, as I now remember, I was always shy and churlish to them, and nodded to them only when they nodded to me, so that they had little inducement to desire my acquaintance. With most of the other students, however, this arose from quite a different cause. As soon as ever I discerned friendliness on the part of a comrade, I at once gave him to understand that I went to luncheon with Prince Ivan Ivanovitch, and kept my own Droshky. All this I said merely to show myself in the most favourable light in his eyes, and to induce him to like me all the more. Yet almost invariably the only result of my communicating to him the intelligence concerning the Droshky and my relationship to Prince Ivan Ivanovitch, was that. To my astonishment he at once adopted a cold and haughty bearing towards me. Among us we had a crown student named Oporoff, a very modest, industrious, and clever young fellow, who always offered one his hand like a slab of wood—that is to say, without closing his fingers or making the slightest movement with them—with the result that his comrades often did the same to him in jest, and called it the deal-board way of shaking hands. He and I nearly always sat next to one another, and discussed matters generally. In particular, he pleased me with the freedom with which he would criticize the professors, as he pointed out to me with great clearness and acumen the merits or demerits of their respective ways of teaching, and made occasional fun of them. Such remarks I found exceedingly striking and diverting when uttered in his quiet, mincing voice. Nevertheless, he never let a lecture pass without taking careful notes of it in his fine handwriting and eventually we decided to join forces, and to do our preparation together. Things had progressed to the point of his always looking pleased, when I took my usual seat beside him, when, unfortunately, I one day found it necessary to inform him that, before her death, my mother had besought my father never to allow us to enter for a government scholarship, as well as that I myself considered crown students, no matter how clever, to be—'Well, they are not gentlemen,' I concluded though beginning to flounder a little and grow red. At the moment Oporoff said nothing, but at subsequent lectures he ceased to greet me or to offer me his board-like hand, and never attempted to talk to me, but as soon as ever I sat down he would lean his head upon his arm and purport to be absorbed in his notebooks. I was surprised at this sudden coolness, but looked upon it as infra dig, pour un jeune homme de bonne maison, to curry favour with a mere crown student of an Oporoff and so left him severely alone, though I confess that his aloofness hurt my feelings. On one occasion I arrived before him, and since the lecture was to be delivered by a popular professor whom students came to hear who did not usually attend such functions, I found almost every seat occupied. Accordingly, I secured Operoff's place for myself by spreading my notebooks on the desk before it, after which I left the room again for a moment. When I returned I perceived that my paraphernalia had been relegated to the bench behind, and the place taken by Operoff himself. I remarked to him that I had already secured it by placing my notebooks there. "'I know nothing about that,' he replied sharply, yet without looking up at me. "'I tell you I placed my notebooks there,' I repeated, purposely trying to bluster, in the hope of intimidating him. Everyone one saw me do it,' I added, including the students near me in my glance. Several of them looked at me with curiosity, yet none of them spoke. "'Seats cannot be booked here,' said Oparov. "'Whoever first sits down in a place keeps it.' And settling himself angrily where he was, he flashed at me a glance of defiance. "'Well, that only means you are a cad,' I said. I have an idea that he murmured something about my being a stupid young idiot, but I decided not to hear it. What would be the use, I asked myself, of my hearing it? that we should brawl like a couple of manance over less than nothing. I was very fond of the word manance, and often used it for meeting awkward junctures. Perhaps I should have said something more had not at that moment a door slammed and the professor, dressed in a blue frock-coat and shuffling his feet as he walked, ascended the rostrum. Nevertheless, when the examination was about to come on, and I had need of someone's notebooks, Oporoff remembered his promise to lend me his. And we did our preparation together. End of Section 9 Recording by Bill Borst Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.